Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome to the Coming Clean podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Perkins. In this episode, we continue our dive into the logistics of the clean energy transition. And today, it's about how to store clean energy, something that is one of the trickiest hurdles to overcome. HydroStore is a Canadian-based company working to make it less of a headache, and their executive vice president of global policy and regulatory affairs, Scott Bolton, is here to help walk us through their unique approach. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. For sure. Uh, we're happy to have you and, and, and really interested about the work that HydroStore does. But before we get to that, before we get to talking about your organization, I, I really want to hear about you and your background and what led you to the role that you're in uh, today as the Executive Vice President of Global Policy and Regulatory Affairs. H- how did you get to that point? Yeah, thanks. It's been a little bit of a journey. I spent just under 20 years working in the electric utility industry. So I work for a company called Syncorp, uh, and they are a, a electric electricity provider across six Western states, uh, Oregon, Washington, California, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming. And I had a great career there. I had the opportunity to work in public policy and with customers and, um, and really during a time that we've seen a lot of new technology and transition in the electricity sector. So I was there during our uh, acquisition by uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy. So being able to be part of one of the, the largest and expand, most expansive you know, utility uh, owners in not just America, but I, I think across the globe. So that was, that was fantastic. But you know, one of the things that I witnessed over my career there is as new technologies started to evolve and, uh, you know, go from idea to commercialization, that wasn't always a smooth transition. There was always a lot of, you know, kind of with any new product or any concept that comes into a very well-established industry, you know, there's some, there's some growing pains. And so, um, I've kind of come to the point in my career where I, I see energy storage as really that next technology evolution in how we create, uh, heed and deliver electricity. And at a time when electrification is growing, the amount of reliance that our economy and all of us as individual citizens have on the availability of electricity. And as I saw this, this new technology starting to really get closer and closer to deployment, thought you know, I can, I can help bridge that. I can help be in a position to make that a smoother transition. And that's one of the things that, you know, really helped motivate me to kind of switch hats and come over to the technology and development side and really take advantage of what I think is going to be a a really exciting time in in this space. It it is an exciting time in the energy industry in general. And I know I talk with a lot of uh, high schoolers and college students who want to get into this space, and there's almost overwhelm of of which direction do I go into. But I also find it interesting that 
high school and college students are interested in the energy industry. So can we actually go a little bit further back in your history? What was it that got you into the industry? Were you really excited about, you know, about utilities as a, as a kid or like, how did that interest evolve? Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I, uh, you know, like I said, I've been, I, I've been in the in, this, in the utility side of the industry now for almost 20 years. And if you'd asked me 21 years ago, you know, did I imagine much of a career in, in utilities? I would have said absolutely not. I bet you know, utilities are where creativity goes to die. And, but, um, you know, going further back in my background, um, you know, after high school, before college, I, I joined the military. I served in the army. And that was a fantastic experience to not just learn new skills, but, but really how to think and problem solve and, you know, embrace leadership through different models. And at the time that I entered the, uh, the electricity sector, it was, it was um, at a point where uh, the West Coast energy crisis had just occurred, the you know, the bankruptcy of Enron and a number of other, uh, you know, energy marketers and, and innovators in, in the marketplace, you know, at, at kind of blown up and trust was really low. And, you know, clearly they were, the, the sector seemed ready for, you know, a new wave of thinking and, and, and leadership to enter into the, into, into the sector. And so that was a time when I was recruited to, Come learn uh, the utility business. Come and learn the role, you know, electricity and and as a regulated business, what that means uh, for uh, the local economy, and that that was what brought me in. It was the it was the opportunity to to kind of help um, rebuild some trust and uh, offer some fresh perspectives into a space that hadn't really, you know had quite as much, um, around that time. And so that happened to coincide very well with a real, you know, revolution in renewable energy and, 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 and new systems and, and innovations within that sector. And so really had the opportunity to kind of tinker with that. So talking about HydroStore, a, a company that, um, you know, based in Canada, but does work um, across the Americas and, and some really interesting projects that I'm not going to pretend to fully understand, uh, but that's what this episode is about, to learn more about that. Um, tell us about what y'all do and kind of the history and, and, and where you're playing currently. Yeah, you bet. So, so maybe a little bit about the company. So uh, HydroStore has been around for you know, over a decade now, but still, still growing to scale. It's a, it's a global leader in what we call advanced compressed air energy storage. So A-CASE is the kind of shorthanded acronym that, that we use to describe the technology. And, uh, you know, HydroStore has a pretty, um, uh, you know, leading deep position within this, this particular technology. So. Compressed air energy storage is a proven technology. It's been around for a while. There's a, there's a plant in Germany that uses compressed air 
So heated air to store the energy from waste heat and then be able to be utilized again to make electricity. Uh, there's also a plant in Alabama, but historically they've been fairly small scale. They've been reliant on you know fossil fuel to kind of fire and, and you know to to primarily create that energy in the first place uh, to then be stored, and you know have been difficult to really scale up. What Hydrostore has been able to do is take that concept of compressed air, but through you know, a, a very innovative design, be able to use, as I like to describe it, gravity and water through the use of uh, you know, creating a uh, uh, big storage cavern in the ground, which is where we uh, you know, keep the compressed air, and then using hydrostatic pressure from water uh, in a reservoir above ground, uh, be able to hold that air in place. And then when it's time to move that air back out through uh, a generator, you know, release that reservoir into the cavern, push the air up and, and create electricity and do so at quite a large scale. So, you know, we're talking hundreds of megawatts of capacity and a duration of constant discharge or energy back to the grid of eight hours or more. So, you know, I would say uh, there's a lot of complex science and engineering behind that, but uh, the concept is actually fairly simple. You know, any of us that have needed to put air in our tire, you know, you've got an air compressor, you plug it into the wall. You know, that, that plug into the wall is basically how we charge our system. We use uh, energy from the grid, uh, usually when it's paired up with renewable energy when there's surplus uh, or low cost energy on the grid. We would you know, use that through the extension cord or transmission line into our plant. Um, much like an air compressor, we fill that canister with air through, you know, compressor compression technology. Um, and instead of you know a big metal canister, that's our our cavern underground. And then um, you know it's time to fill that tire. You know, when the market needs that electricity, we're able to do that and reverse the process back. So we have projects underway that are in advanced permitting in California, as well as Australia. In fact, it's highly likely our Australia project will be the first major advanced compressed air energy storage you know, project online in the world and will likely be one of the largest uh, long duration energy storage facilities on the planet when it goes into service. And then as we look at a technology that I really believe is about to really burst out onto the scene, I, I think, you know, over the next, uh, few years, we'll be, you know, likely announcing other project developments as well. I, I love the little teaser for what might be coming next. So I was going to ask you to explain it like we're five, and I, I think that's a good uh, that analogy they use is good. So basically, we're taking energy off the grid. We're we're compressing this air underground, uh, and then when we need it, we're releasing the air and 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 that sort of um, uh, whatever science term you want to use there. But that that compressed air generates the electricity, basically releasing it back onto the grid. Is that did I did I get that right? You got it right. And and what I maybe should have elaborated on is is why. <laughs> you yeah. know What 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 problem does this solve? And and you know, our, our, our mission is that this is one of the biggest problems to solve. So 
we've seen the real growth of renewable energy, solar, wind energy, you know, even some hydro that, you know, maybe run to the river or not as dispatchable or as, as, as other systems. And so what we have right now in the U.S. is the penetration into the grid of a lot of low-cost renewable resources, but, you know, we don't have the ability to control when that electricity is, is optimally made and when it's not. And so we really do have the, a situation where we can have certain times of the day or year where the grid is producing more energy than can be consumed. Demand isn't keeping up with that supply. And right now, you know, it basically gets wasted. You have to curtail or turn off some of those resources to make sure that you're always in perfect harmony between supply and demand. Uh, and then, you know, you have some times of the day where demand outstrips supply and energy storage, and in particular, long duration storage that can bridge across nighttime, that can bridge between days of, you know, high wind and no wind. That's the solution. That is how you integrate and smooth out um, that energy production and that ability to meet um, electricity demand by customers. So that's that's the premise, and that's really the the niche that this technology fills and the problem that we solve. Yeah, I think what a lot of people don't always realize is that where renewable energy tends to be produced or captured is typically very far away from where people live. So I think here, uh, where I am in Texas, up in the Panhandle, we have uh, the enormous, you know, fields of, of wind turbines. We've got solar out in the West Texas desert. But when you're trying to get that to the people in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, there's a lot of transmission that hasn't been built yet. To your point, there isn't storage that can happen along the way. We traditionally think of battery storage as kind of the traditional storage model that we talk about. Where relative to production and consumers does HydroStore uh, develop your, your sites? That's it, a great question. Um, we are geology dependent. So um, we have quite a bit of flexibility in how we can site our plants. Unlike other long duration storage technologies, such as pumped hydro storage, you know, which is basically having two reservoirs shifting water back and forth to make electricity. Um, you know, we have a little bit more flexibility in how we can site. So it could be near where generation resources are. So where the wind and solar are at, that's potentially a, a, a good place to locate a storage system. But we can also site our, our projects closer to loads as well. And the typical footprint, so you know how much of the plant you see above ground is generally around the same size as a natural gas power plant. So definitely an industrial you know, site, you know, lots, of, lots of piping and metal and uh, you know, machinery within that fence line. But what really matters most to us is our ability to connect to the transmission system and the quality of the rock below. And generally, particularly in North America, we have, uh, we have some pretty good rock quality. 
Of course, we have to do the geotechnical surveys. We have to know that for sure before we sign a project. But what's nice is that, um, you know, we're not creating a new process. We're not doing something that, you know, there isn't a great labor force and, and skill base for here in America already. We're using the same technologies as traditional mining, as um, the natural gas industry and creating storage facilities for hydrocarbons, so for natural gas and oil. So we can use a lot of the same labor profile that has served those other parts of the energy industry and apply them to our, our technology as well. Um, one of the first thing that comes to mind, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, the environmental impact of a site like this. So you're creating essentially a big hole in the ground. I imagine there, there's some things there. Another question of that is, you know, are, are you reinforcing that with cement? Is it sort of, you know, what does that look like underground? And then also, what are the potential challenges with having compressed air stored underground? If you could just take us through some of those pieces. Yeah, you bet. So. Yeah, of course, like with any, you know, major excavation or, or mining activity, you know, that will be highly regulated for safety and environmental impact. And again, the nice thing is, is that our technology and what we do to create our storage caverns doesn't require new regulations or laws. These are well-established you know, practices. So being able to follow existing design and safety requirements for that cavern construction is really helpful. We're, we're kind of, you know, leaning on the accomplishments of, you know, our energy forefathers and being able to utilize the same, same labor and the same environmental and regulatory screens. Yes. So, so part of the design is to make sure that we can store air safe and safely and, and make sure that it doesn't go anywhere. You know, it stays within the cavern uh, as well as the water that, you know, will flow back and forth. And so we will improve that cavern. We will line it with different, you know, materials. It, it could be cement, it could be different polymers. It's going to be pretty specific to what that rock quality is and the design of, of each project's cavern. But again, kind of existing uh, practices to, to help guide how we would do that. And then when you talk about the use of resources, the, the rock that we take out, the waste rock, that can be you know, used for all kinds of secondary purposes. So aggregate for road building or for cement or for other you know, industrial uses, Suddenly, we have a byproduct of our our process that can contribute to a, a secondary economic benefit. Water use, which I've mentioned, you know, we do rely on water, but unlike um, you know hydroelectric power or other you know pump storage technologies, we don't need as much, and so we are going to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission for you know, licenses to operate these facilities, they basically use water much like other industrial processes. So 
it's a it's a relatively smaller footprint than other infrastructure based storage technologies. It's lighter touch on water and our underground activity is really just moving air back and forth. So it's not like storing natural gas or other gases where if somehow we are no longer in containment, yeah, we've created a an environmental problem. So what are the issues that you run into at development, whether, whether they are regulatory issues, maybe it's a, you know, you talked a little bit about site selection, very dependent on the geology of the space, talent uh, to, to get these things developed and executed. Um, what are some of those roadblocks that y'all experience? Yeah. So, you know, admittedly, I think a lot of these we will <laughs> discover as we go. I feel like, you know, um, We'll we'll have a little bit more detail on how to answer that question as we uh, get further along and develop more projects. But I think out of the gate, we're we're like any other major infrastructure project. You know, we're going to have community impacts. We're going to have different stakeholders that are going to weigh in, whether it's you know NEPA and you know environmental permitting. Or it's even just making sure we've got you know the right zoning for where we're putting in a project. You know we're we're going to go through the same hoops as you know any other industrial you know project. The biggest barriers right now, or the biggest uh, challenges to overcome, is, is really connection to the transmission grid. Part of our use case is that you know we can help take some of the, the pressure off of, and congestion off of the transmission system by being able to store energy. So we're actually part of the solution, but in order to be part of the solution, we've got to be able to get hooked up in the first place. So it really is getting that interconnection to the grid that any energy player uh, has to grapple with. Um, and then, you know, the other is just uh, commercial adaptation. So, so getting um you know customers lined up uh educating and getting utility companies comfortable with the technology and helping them understand how our energy storage solution you know can complement how they run the grid reliably and how you know this can become uh an affordable solution for them so those those really are you know what we're encountering right now when you talk I'm sure about that there will be yeah sorry no you're good I, but when you talk about connection to current transmission um that's something that we talk about at ACC a lot transmission you know with renewable as i was saying with them being further out from where populations live building that transmission network is going to be really important right to 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 literally power the the energy um the clean energy transition what does that look like when you're trying to connect up to it? Is that when you when you run into challenges, is that because governments or states aren't building those out? It's because you have to, uh, as a company, you're building those out, and it's hard to 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 do that. Kind of take us in for someone who isn't aware of how connection to transmission works. Um, how y'all work yeah, through that? It, it, and I'll and I'll probably lean more here on my my previous life working at Pacific Corp, which is the largest private transmission owner in the Western US. And that was part of my, my portfolio before I came here about HydroStore. And 
you know, a lot of the transmission system that the country relies on today, you know, was really built 30, 40 years ago. It was really the last big tranche of, of transmission build. And a lot of development and growth occurs. And so where there may have been a, a transmission line out in the middle of nowhere, the middle of nowhere, you know, may be somebody's community today. And so um, that interface between the public and, you know, the bulk electric transmission system, you know, has just become more challenging over time as, you know, communities and, and economies grow. On top of that, it's just really expensive. The transmission system provides enormous benefit and it's probably one of the least understood components of our broader energy system. But it is, it is, it is an expensive piece with a lot of planning that goes into it as well as, you know, just regulatory consideration and, and approvals. Um, you know, I, I used to quip quite a bit in my old job that any new transmission line that's conceived up today will be old enough to go to college by the time it gets built. It, 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 it will take at least a decade uh, for most major new transmission lines to be planned and built, and oftentimes, you know, much longer than that. And that slowness of additional new transmission is just really at odds with the growth and demand being placed on the system uh, for new energy resources. So there may be some opportunities to uh, repower existing power plants or to replace existing power plants and where they connect into the, the, the transmission system with you know, new technologies. But the reality is, is that America and, and, and the globe's reliance on electricity is really growing and it's outstripping the ability to keep up on an infrastructure basis. And that's really the fundamental pressure that's on the transmission grid right now, our transmission system. We think our advanced compressed air energy storage technology and long duration storage in general really helps with that. We can use the existing transmission more efficiently. We can integrate these new intermittent renewable resources more holistically. We've got a huge role to play in stretching the value of the existing infrastructure that we have in place. But without a doubt, everybody needs uh, just more connectivity and more ability uh, and capacity to put energy online because the, the need on the consumer end is just growing that much more. I, I imagine a big piece there is the education of people about what this is, why it's important, why long-term it can lead to, uh, to, to cheaper, more reliable energy. Um, and what I have observed, and I'm not saying this is the case for y'all, but what I've observed from my seat, um, working and you know, talking to industry and energy companies is they are, they're, they're, they're so intelligent when it comes to the storytelling and the marketing and the education, that they are not, right? And so it, it becomes this huge problem where you have this great idea, you have this innovation, but getting the public to care about it, to pay attention to it, to understand it uh, with shorter and shorter attention spans today 
becomes a real challenge. How do y'all, uh, how do y'all think about education? How do you begin to engage some of the communities you work in and how do, how do you get people to understand everything that you're trying to do? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. It's a question that frankly should be asked and answered of every participant in the modern energy system, because we have to be thinking in those terms. And for me, it really is, how do you meet the public where they're at? Because there is no one perspective or, or paradigm that you're, you're addressing. We're, we're a diverse nation with lots of different sizes and shapes of communities and different perspectives, you know, along the spectrum. And so I think a lot of it is being very transparent and having real authenticity behind what you're trying to do. No matter who you are, you can kind of, you know, smell a snake oil salesman coming down the road. And so I think, you know, the energy sector and, and certainly my company have to step up and, and we're dedicated to stepping up and just being very clear what our technology does, why it's important, what the big picture issues are that we're solving. We're not just here to, to build stuff you know, uh, and spend a lot of capital without really having a strong need case behind it. And um, I do see the, the public getting more sophisticated around their energy use, certainly over my career, you know, 20 years ago, there was not much of a debate of, you know, what's the carbon content of my energy use? What is my, yeah, every time I flip on a switch, what is my contribution to the emissions picture? We see that. I saw it at the utility and I see that now in the clean energy and clean tech space. So, so it is a more sophisticated consumer uh, who's paying attention to their energy use. But you're always going to have those very localized impacts and interfaces, and you've got to be willing to come and meet people on their doorstep and explain what you're doing and answer their questions to have any real credibility to, to go from an idea to a reality of a project of scale and scope. With that, do you encounter a lot of nimbyism whenever you're in a community? Is is that a big part of the the struggles that you face? Uh, so far, we've been doing pretty well on that level. Um, we just completed our environmental impact statement process or near completion in Australia around a project and very limited feedback from the public. And I think that speaks to having a very strong upfront ground game of going into communities and explaining what we're doing on the front end, making sure that people are kind of finding out late in the process that there's a, there's a big new neighbor next door. And so uh, I, I think, you know, we're definitely going to learn from and apply these lessons as we go. Our project in, in California, you know, we've had great engagement with the local county officials and you know, other uh, stakeholders in that community, you know, who, again, especially in rural communities, I, I think they don't get enough credit for that they bring real experience. You know, these, these communities have provided, you know, important contributions to the natural resource economy of the U.S. 
for many years. And so I think any developer who goes in not understanding that, yeah, there might be some concern. There may even be some level of nimbyism, but they're the, they're the folks who live there. And if, and if we can't establish that we're going to be a net contributor and a good neighbor, then we probably don't belong there. So it, it, it's easy to complain about process and get frustrated. I mean, Lord knows energy development is about having good days and bad days and persevering through those. But that persistence and that that constant engagement and willingness to to really listen is is the only way anything can get done. But I think that's an important point about the rural communities and and certainly one that I feel strongly about is um, sometimes developers will think these are going to be easier places for us to do this in because uh, they don't quite have the resources to fight back. They probably don't have as much of a uh, of an opinion or, or, you know, as much of a bandwidth for a say, but to your point, they're, they're some of the most connected to their, uh, to their earth and, and, and to their environments. And so I, I think that's important that, that, um, that y'all involve them heavily in that process. Um, okay. So maybe not as much nimbyism, but for, for your critics, what do your critics say? And what do you say back to them? If you were to, to grab a, a coffee with the people who uh, are against your projects, what are they telling you and what are your responses to them? Yeah, um, I'm going to invent some of those here because I <laughs> I just haven't had enough real-world e- experience with, uh, you know, an intractable stakeholder problem. But, you know, I, I do think energy projects writ large, you know, do have critics. And I think they fall largely into a couple categories. You know, one is just me coming out of the utility industry you know, big complex systems that ultimately most consumers, most customers, ratepayers see at the end of the day is what's on their bill. And so, you know, I'm not sure most people who go about living their life and has a, a, a real a real dependence and 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 uh, reliance on on electricity and natural gas to to light and heat their homes you know, really have to think very far upstream about how that's being done and how their providers are investing to to serve their needs today and out into the future. But they do notice when their bills change. And so whether you're on the development side or your utility service company, you know, bringing that, that, that service down to the community, to the household level, Anytime there's going to be a new technology or a new major infrastructure project, that will have some level of impact on customer bills. And so there's always going to be a heavy scrutiny on whether that is the right solution, whether that's the right cost, and whether the right people are bearing that cost. And so that will that will always be there. I fully expect it to be you know, part of the conversation as we, you know, develop uh, our systems and, you know, engage utilities and other customers and deploying those systems. So, you know, it, it is incumbent on us to not only, you know, be very compelling that we solve a real problem and we solve that problem at a scale and at a, 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 a cost point that is a net benefit for consumers, that customers will be better off 
with investment and energy storage than, you know, if other solutions were brought or if no solution was brought and their costs go up anyhow or their, their electricity is less reliable. So I do think that economic need will always be part of the picture. And then there's going to be the, you know, is this the right facility in the right place, you know, as we were talking about. And I think, I think on both levels, those, those, those problems can be solved, solvable. One of the criticisms that I often hear just about new energy technologies in general is we are decades off from this being commercially viable. The technology is not uh, is not where it needs to be for this to to you know to scale. Uh, we hear this a lot with nuclear, right? The critics of nuclear will say, "Well, it's it, the regulatory framework and and the technology is just probably ten twenty years off, and so we shouldn't you know invest too heavily in that." My response to that is we're a country that has in the past moved very quickly on things that have been beneficial. So I, I don't buy this idea that because today it's 10 years off that tomorrow it has to be 10 years off. I think we, we have shown our ability to innovate very quickly, but also not investing today in what could have uh, a major you know, compounding impact on the climate challenge that we find ourselves in seems like a miscalculation. Do you encounter that with critics? I mean, do you hear people say this is a great technology, but the scaling ability is a, is a long ways off? And so, you know, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. Yeah, if if everything's ten years off, it never arrives. Yeah, you've you've got to take some risk, and you've got to, you know, push through and innovate, and and that's really the stage that we're at right now in in HydroStore's journey. The, our, our Willow Rock project in California, our Silver City project in Australia, these are going to be large-scale, grid-connected. These aren't demonstration projects. These are real solutions that will become a solution on day one of their operation, and they're within a few years of, of becoming operational. And so as we demonstrate the viability of the technology, the, the safety, and operational capabilities of what we're talking about, that adoption will, will grow from there. I, I'm fully confident in that, as are you know, our, our investors um, that have stood behind the company and really believe that this is going to be a, a, a really important contribution to the overall, not just energy reliability picture, but as you mentioned, you know, decarbonization as well. I also think one of the the interesting features to our uh, advanced compressed air energy storage uh, technology and, and systems is that, yeah, it's a, it, it's a new application for energy storage, but we're using existing parts and practices. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're using the same workforce and technologies for creating our air storage caverns as the mining industries and the natural gas storage sector currently employed today. So even if you believe that the grid is going to become less fossil fuel dependent, the jobs that are currently feeding uh, into that sector today have a home with our technology. As well, when I talk about the, the air compression systems uh, you know, heat exchangers and the generation technology to send electricity back to the grid. 
these are not new need to figure out a manufacturing process to make these systems. They already exist today. The ability to to spin a turbine and generate electricity, that that's a fairly off-the-shelf technology right now. And the um, the other components to our air compression system can be found in other industrial uses and manufacturing. So the the secret of our sauce really is reassembling existing supply chains and equipment to do different things and to do it cleaner and better. That's important both from a timeline perspective, but also in a previous episode, we talked about the importance of talent in the energy transition and people who over time, their jobs are at risk, their jobs are you know going to become maybe even obsolete. It, it sounds like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but you're able to take people who were previously in the natural gas space or previously in all, all these other energy producer spaces uh, that have those skills and put them into one of these facilities and maybe with a little bit of retraining, but you're able to provide jobs uh, to people who come from those industries. Is, is, is that right? Absolutely. It's not only a speed to market consideration for our hydro store, but it really is, I think, a great story that, that's probably not well enough understood within the idea of an energy transition that um, you know, we're able to leverage the existing uh, talent pool that America has relied upon to provide its, its energy needs uh, for decades into a new application. And it's one that Again, not a, a, a ton of, of, of differentiation. We're doing much of the same kinds of basic things, but we're just doing it differently. And we're doing it in a way that, that brings the, the component parts of both new and old pieces of the energy mix together to be more efficient and to ultimately be much more clean. I love it. And I encourage people to check out the website. There is a video there that does a good job of explaining how the how there kind of includes a cross-section, how the technology works and all of that. Well, it was, um, I, I want to end, Scott, with a couple of rapid-fire questions. They really don't have a ton to do about HydroStore, but just to, to kind of uh, get some, some thoughts from you. And, and the first one, uh, which we like to ask our guests uh, and, and even you know members of ACC and staff of ACC when they come on board, is what's your favorite national park or your favorite place in nature whenever you need to get away? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I, I'm currently living in, in, in Portland, Oregon, and I, and I love the Oregon coast. So, oh. you know, I, I would, it would be heresy to pick one over any of the others. But I, I would also say last, last fall, I had the opportunity to go to Joshua Tree National Park. And if folks haven't been there, it is definitely a bucket list experience. It's, it's an amazing place. And among the, the national park system, it really is exceptionally well kept and cared for. So, uh, you know, we, we put a lot of wear and tear on our national parks, uh, but the, the, the folks at Joshua Tree really do a great job of keeping it as, as, as fresh looking as, as they possibly can. And I agree with you. The Pacific Northwest, just in general, is such an awesome place to be. Uh, a cool, cool vibe up there for sure. Um, book recommendation: If it, whether it could be a classic you read a while ago or something interesting you read recently, um, what's something that you would tell our audience to go pick up? 
Oh boy. Um, <laughs> wasn't ready for that one. Let me, let me, let me think for a moment. I just read Peter Zehan's new book. Um, and, and I'm, that's trying for the title of it off the top of my head. Um, but I'm, I've, I've really been into the intersection of data and, you know, really getting into the numbers and math to help explain what's going on in the world right now. The and so, you know, what are the impacts of population increases? What are the impacts of a, a, a modernizing uh, economy and its contributions to the global economy? You know, those kinds of, of intersections and, you know, helping break down, you know, some of the things that, that we see and kind of flash by on the screen and go a little bit deeper into understanding why that is. Um, that's, uh, that's something that's really been driving, you know, a lot of my reading, I think. Awesome. Um, outside of the technology that HydroStore is working on, what is a technology that you're most excited about coming online over the next couple of decades or even maybe, maybe even beyond that? You know, um, hydrogen has the potential to be a real game changer. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see how fast hydrogen can, can really scale up. Much like what we have with compressed air at HydroStore, it's, it, it's, a, it's a known technology. It, it's proven already. Um, you can separate hydrogen from water molecules and, and have a, a, a fuel that is, is clean burning. And that's a, that's a really interesting future that can be done at scale um, and affordably. Right now, the, 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 the big challenge is that it takes more energy to create that form of energy. And until you can get more efficiency brought into it, I think you know, its applications will be limited. But again, it's another case where, you know, with some technology innovation, we can use a lot of the systems and workforces and oftentimes the, many of the same, uh, you know, communities can prosper under a hydrogen economy as they have under a traditional fossil fuel economy. So a lot of hope around the potential for hydrogen there. For sure. And then our, our final rapid fire question here is, if you could put one message out into the world, it's a billboard that everyone sees, it's a Super Bowl commercial that everyone consumes, what is the one message that you would want to send to people right now? Oh, man, I think it really is kind of that golden rule message. You know, we all know how we like to be treated. We all know what it feels like to, you know, to be welcomed and respected and, you know, just making sure that that is how we approach every interaction that we have. I just think we live in a time where things are quickly inferred to their worst possible interpretation. And we seem kind of, you know, primed to, to take things in the most negative place. And I would really love to see a bit of a collective effort to uh, de-escalate how we engage each other because, you know, our, t our time here is pretty short. So let's live it the best way we can. Agreed with you there. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I, I think probably I certainly have learned a lot of new stuff today. Hopefully our audience has learned some new stuff unless they are experts in compressed air and energy storage. But 
uh, I think the case is that uh, this is a really exciting technology that people are going to want to look into more. And so um, I just want to thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. Well, we'll end it on that note. I want to thank Scott for joining us today. Certainly, I've learned a lot. I'm sure you, the listener, have learned a lot, uh, unless you came to this podcast, an expert in energy storage and compressed air, but a uh, really informative episode. I encourage you to check out HydroStore, and we thank uh, them and Scott for being on the show today. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.